some sort of shakeup in the playoff rankings with Baylor and Oklahoma playing in Week 12. We just didn't know what it was. In my opinion, we knew the winner would jump over somebody. And for the first half, it looked like that was going to be Baylor who was going to jump, and Baylor was going to jump significantly. Instead, it's Oklahoma after Baylor collapsed. Andrew Doughty back on the High Motor Podcast. Chase Kitty filling in beside me again this week. It felt like a shakeup week that kind of further opened up some scenarios that we didn't really have last year because everybody just kept winning. And I think it it muddied the playoff picture even more. But first, the playoff rankings. We're going to do the same thing we did last week, where I'm going to tell you what it's going to look like. Chase is going to tell you what it should look like. Chase, do you want to go first? Yeah, so first of all, of course, no change in the top. You've got LSU at one. You've got Ohio State at two. Uh, I left Clemson at three. I struggled with these next couple, right? I, I almost put Georgia at three just because I think if you look at what Georgia has done, now they got the win at Auburn, they've got the win over Notre Dame, they've got the Florida game. Like, that's a pretty strong resume. And even though I think a lot of us look around and go, don't know if they're going to end up in the playoffs, that is a resume worthy of that three spot. But they have the loss. I'm going to leave Clemson at three because they're undefeated. I don't love it. I don't love a lot of the decisions I made here, but it is what it is. Uh, Oregon's sort of hanging around there at five, which is around where I had them last week. I've got Penn State at six, which seems crazy after last week, but I really do think highly of Penn State. I think highly of Indiana, too. Like I thought 14.5 points was way too many points to give uh, Indiana this week, so I thought they were a strong play. Uh, I, I don't knock Penn State at all for the, for the seven-point win there. Oklahoma at seven, which... I think you have to put them there. And I think we can have a larger discussion about did Oklahoma win this game? Did Baylor blow this game? I think you can make arguments both ways, but at the end of the day, you have to reward the Sooners for pulling that game out the way they did. I have Utah at eight. I have a Utah point that I want to make later in the podcast that I'll circle back around to. I have Alabama at nine, which is another one I don't feel great about because now you've got multiple key playmakers on the on the Crimson Tide that are, that are gone, that are injured, you're probably not going to hear from them again this year. Uh, so it feels like they were overrated to start with. I've talked about that a little bit this season. Now they're losing key players, but you still have to have them in there. I've got them at 9. Last week I had them at 10. And Baylor at 10. We saw both Baylors this week, right? We saw the first half Baylor, the one that I've sort of seen all year, where they're making plays on defense, they're creating turnovers, the offense is dynamic, it can do multiple things effectively. And then you have the second half, where they just looked underwhelming and outclassed. So, And Baylor's in an interesting spot there for you, because if I recall correctly, you had Baylor at four last week. So even though they're higher in your rankings this week than what they were last week before the loss, you still dropped them six spots. That's a significant, right? They were four last week in your rankings, weren't they? They were, and I've got them down at 10, and, and I think some people might say that's too reactive, and I think may, maybe that's a fair point to make. But now when you look at this Baylor team, 
They, they, they don't have a path. The path was hard before. It's basically impossible now. The, the, the amount of national carnage that they need to get back in the playoff mix is basically impossible. And it might have doomed the Big 12 overall. Uh, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on Oklahoma and, and their path going forward with the loss to Kansas State, who just lost to West Virginia this weekend. Uh, so I, I think the Big 12 is kind of a mess, and I think you can make an argument to put both Oklahoma and Baylor sort of anywhere from that 6, 7, 8 range all the way down into sort of the mid-teens when you're talking about Baylor and, and where they're going to end up. I know you're going to turn around and give us your, the top 10 of what you think it's going to look like, and I can't imagine Baylor's going to be in that top 10. No, they're not in the top 10, and we'll get to the, the Big 12 Baylor-Oklahoma stuff here in a second. But yeah, really quickly, so LSU is going to stay at 1, Ohio State's going to stay at 2. I think Georgia will hop up to three. They should hop up to number three. I have them there. I think it'll happen. I think the the margin for the playoff committee will be very small, but I trust that they're going to make that decision. I don't think it's the same type of decision as moving LSU from two to one last week after LSU's been over Alabama, but I think it falls kind of into that same bucket where Clemson didn't do anything to move down. They actually beat who, you know, Wake Forest has struggled a little bit, but you and I still like Wake Forest quite a bit, and they still just beat the shit out of a a decent Wake Forest team. Yeah, so I think that, I do think Georgia will be three. Um, I won't be surprised if Clemson is three, kind of like you mentioned, you alluded to there, but I I do have Georgia at three in my predictions. Clemson four, I think Alabama stays at five. I think Oregon stays at six. I think Utah stays at seven. Both of them with, with good, not good wins, but they smashed inferior opponents. And this is where it gets really interesting. I am, I'm pretty certain, except for the Georgia Clemson thing, I'm pretty certain that those will be the top seven. I would bet a lot of money on that. I don't think Oklahoma is going to hop those Pac-12 teams. I don't think they're going to hop Utah, and I don't think they're going to hop, excuse me, both Utah and Oregon. So I think Oklahoma will be in at number eight. And then I have Penn State at nine and Minnesota at 10. I get the argument that that Penn State should not be ahead of Minnesota because they just lost the head-to-head. And even though I also think highly of Indiana, I don't think the committee will see that the same. And following what they've done over the last five years, I know it's different people, different chair, whatever, I still think Penn State will be number nine. I don't know how much they margin. I think that even though Minnesota won that game last weekend, I still don't think the committee looks down that much on Penn State. And I would be curious where Indiana, I don't know if they how they're doing it this year, if they're actually ranking like below 25. So if, if Indiana, like on their board, uh, on their fake hypothetical board is like number 30 or number 35 or 40 or wherever they are, yeah, it, they didn't look great in that game beating Indiana, but they still beat a pretty good Indiana team that's going to win nine games, maybe 10 games this season. So I think Penn State is actually at number nine, but I would be fine if Minnesota was at number nine. And then Kind of who I had on the outside looking in. I have Florida at 11. I think they drop, even though they beat Missouri. They looked okay, not great. I think Wisconsin's 12, Michigan 13, and Notre Dame number 14. I'll go back to the Big 12, though, because I think that's that's kind of the key here. I completely agree. I think the Big 12 is in just a horrible spot. I don't see Oregon or Utah losing. So I think that they're the winner of that game, the winner of the Pac-12 championship game, we assume, because Oregon clinched the Pac-12 North. Utah is going to be in from the South. The winner of that game, assuming that Alabama just wins out, they don't lose. Alabama will be ahead of them until the Pac-12 championship game, at which time one of those teams will hop them. So the question becomes, if Georgia loses to LSU, whether or not Georgia is 3 or 4 this week, does the Pac-12 champ hop Georgia? And how close does that Georgia-LSU game have to be for you to say, no, 
even if Georgia loses that game, they're still ahead of the Pac-12 champ. Where are you with that? I think Georgia has such an ass. Let me back up. I think it depends on who wins and who loses. That's where you got to start, right? Because if Georgia loses... Yes, I'm saying if Georgia loses, I think that they're going to lose. I think they will too, but can we do a quick thing where, wow, what if they win? Let's do this first. Yeah, I want to talk to that because that's huge too, but I'm kind of setting up this Big 12 conversation. So first of all, we have to talk about, because I don't think Oklahoma, even if they just roll through their final games, roll through the Big 12 championship game over presumably Baylor, I don't think Oklahoma can jump Oregon or Utah. Do you agree with that? No matter what happens. Yeah, yeah, assuming that... Assuming that Oregon and Utah went out in the regular season and then the winner of the Pac-12 championship, I don't think there's any way, <clears throat> even if Oklahoma beats Baylor by 30 in the Big 12 championship game, I don't think there's any way Oklahoma hops one of those two teams or both of them, assuming. I agree, yeah. Okay, so we that have that down. Now back to that SEC, the, the loser of LSU-Georgia. At this point, we're saying Georgia loses. Does the Pac-12 champ hop them? And if, if so or if not... The Big 12 kind of becomes irrelevant then. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, if you don't no, even the, think Oklahoma's going to hop the winner of the Pac-12 championship game, we don't really even need to have the conversation, is Oklahoma going to hop Georgia? Because they just can't if Oregon and Utah are ahead of them. Short of absolute chaos, I think the Big 12 is playing for a conference championship and a New Year's Six Bowl. They're in just right the shittiest spot, and they were two weeks ago when the rankings first came out. I think that was my big takeaway when we talked about that, but... But they After, were still in a in a defensible position at that point because if Baylor beats Oklahoma and then they beat Oklahoma again and they've still got the Texas game left, like they had some opportunities to jump up into the mix. Now it feels like nobody's in position to do it. And anything. you mentioned, because we're going to be talking about that South Carolina loss a lot with George. Like if they keep it close versus LSU, if they beat LSU, they're in. But if they keep it close and they lose to LSU in the last second field goal, we're going to be talking about that South Carolina loss a lot. Suddenly, Kansas State is not nearly as bad as South Carolina, but suddenly, as you mentioned, they went to Morgantown and lost to a pretty bad West Virginia team. Suddenly, we're talking about a loss that two weeks ago we thought was a pretty good loss. Even though they got smashed for about three quarters in Manhattan, we were saying that wasn't a bad loss. Suddenly, that's a really bad loss. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, you know that Kansas State is talented. You know that they're good. You know that they're well, you know... if. If you know anything, you know that they're well coached, right? But it, it just feels like since that Oklahoma game, they've they've sort of regressed and are playing at their talent level. Because when you look at the Big Twelve, Kansas State is routinely one of the lesser talented teams. And I know that sort of sounds like I'm taking a shot, but it's actually kind of a compliment. They routinely play over their heads because they're well coached and they're well schemed. But it's not like if you look at this conference that has Oklahoma and Texas and TCU and these like high-octane athletic teams, you wouldn't put Kansas State in that group. It's more about old-school football and running the ball effectively. So it, it feels like they no longer are getting the bounces in that regard. It, it feels like they're playing sort of at their level, and at their level isn't always great. Uh, it, I, it's... It really sounds like I'm taking a shot, but I'm not. No, but it's kind of what's kept them from getting over. Even though that their their turnaround under Bill Snyder was so good, and they were they've been really good. They've been one of the more consistent programs, definitely in the conference and nationally for the last what 25 years now. They haven't. To me, they're like Wisconsin light. And we talked about Wisconsin, I think, last week or two weeks ago. How Wisconsin kind of missed their window, in our opinion. Wisconsin's getting a few more talented players than Kansas State. 
But they're kind of like, Wisconsin's been really good now for a really long time after Barry Alvarez turned around a complete shit program. But they're kind of like Wisconsin light to me where their talent's a little bit less and they're also just struggling to get over the hump. They're usually a good win for teams in their playoff picture. They're never a great win. And when you lose to them, it's usually not a bad loss. However, this is looking like a bad loss for Oklahoma. And I agree. I think the Big 12 is in just a horrible, horrible spot. What would what would it take? Would it take... We both agreed that Oregon and Utah are going to be ahead of them. So we have to say that Oregon or Utah need to lose one of their last regular season games, and then that two-loss two team needs to win the Pac-12 championship game. Is that where, barring other chaos elsewhere, LSU losing, Ohio State losing, neither of us see that happening. So is it just a matter of Oregon or Utah need to lose in the regular season, and that team needs to win the Pac-12 championship game? I think the Pac-12 has to take itself out, but you also need some of these other SEC teams to sort of beat up on each other too. Because even if you take the Pac-12 out of it, I still think one lost Georgia, or even two lost Georgia, in a close SEC championship game, would probably get the nod over a one loss Oklahoma team when you look at what Georgia's done this year. Especially if we think, I think... Let's just say Georgia's four. I think they're going to be three, but let's say Georgia's four. I think Oklahoma will be eight, seven at best. That's still a pretty significant gap. And yes, even though that Oklahoma would have another win over Baylor, uh, they also play Oklahoma State and Kansas, so Oklahoma State wouldn't be too bad of a win. That would still probably be a top 25 win at the end of the season. The gap, like we talked about last week, the the, the razor-thin gap um, between, I think I was talking about Clemson and then... Uh, Alabama, maybe? I can't remember who it was. But the gap between Georgia and Oklahoma right now is pretty significant. I don't see... They kind of set the precedent precedent last week when they dropped Alabama barely at all for what was deemed a decent loss at LSU, even though they got crushed for 30 to 35 minutes of that game. I see the same thing kind of happening here in Oklahoma. The, the gap between them and Georgia is so big. In my opinion, it's basically like Utah has... They go to Arizona next week. Utah has to lose that game, or Oregon has to lose at Arizona State. And then if Oregon loses at Arizona State, then Oregon has to beat Utah in the Pac-12 championship. That would knock the Pac-12 out. I don't see that happening. That would be on a beyond shocking level for me. And and while we're on the Pac-12 thing, I I know this is a little different, but I I do want to bring it up. Doesn't it feel like most of these Pac-12 conversations sort of revolve around Oregon that like Oregon is the player because they played Auburn back in August, literally August. It was that long ago. They played or they played Auburn in August, and now like they're in the driver's seat in the Pac-12. They are absolutely equal with Utah. Like they're. I, I don't necessarily mean their teams because I do think Oregon is better, but Oregon and Utah are in the exact same position in that they are right out of that top four, and if they win out and then win the Pac-12 championship game. They have a decent shot to slide into the top four and play in that four seed. They also have very similar resumes. I mean, if you look at their metrics, like their strength of schedule, um, entering last week, Oregon 44, Utah 49. Strength of record, Oregon 8, Utah 10. Um, yeah, I mean, all, all their Oregon metrics... Oregon just has a better loss. Right, That's all their really metrics all are within like 10% of each other. They're all like in that same percentile. So I don't... Yeah, I, I agree that it, it's weird that there's this kind of narrative that it is Oregon... And maybe right. I've and just then seen Utah's the sort of the afterthought. But the reason I bring that up is because if you look at the betting odds, Oregon to make the playoff versus Utah to make the playoff, Oregon has like way more favorable odds to do that. And if you're looking for an angle, like Utah, when it should be sort of 52 48, 
That's not what the odds say, and Utah actually has really good value right now to make the playoffs. Let's talk about to other things. I want to talk about something very specifically in that Minnesota Iowa game. Minnesota losing that game. Um, now we're even though that I think Minnesota would be in at twelve and one with a win over Ohio, Ohio State. We're kind of having that discussion that we had last week. If you can't beat Iowa, even though Iowa City has been historically a tough place to play, especially when night comes. If you can't win that game, you're probably not going to beat Ohio State. But anyways, in that Minnesota-Iowa game, there was a situation at the end of the first half, for those of you who did not see this. So Minnesota was trailing 20-3. to uh, They had first and goal, and then it ended up being third and goal, nine seconds left on the clock. So Iowa on that play, on third and goal with nine seconds, Iowa defensive back held Tyler Johnson in the end zone. So if, if he doesn't hold him, I think it was actually called pass interference, it's probably a touchdown. Tanner Morgan probably finds him in the corner of the end zone for a touchdown. He threw it over there. It was actually kind of a close pass. If he's not held, it's probably a touchdown. Anyways, that play took five seconds. Minnesota gets the P.I. call, but now you're at fourth and goal, or excuse me, first and goal with four seconds left. Minnesota opted for the field goal. Somebody tweeted, and I've thought about this before, about would they consider changing the rule? And I can't remember who tweeted this. I just grabbed the quote. I feel like there should be a rule waivable by the offense for that Minnesota-Iowa situation, resetting the clock to what it was at the beginning of the play when there's defensive pass interference holding, etc. in the final minute. They say the Gophers got robbed of a, of a TD shot. I don't think they got robbed. That's just the rule. I mean, Iowa, I don't know if their defensive back said, I'm going to hold you so that you have to kick a field goal. I doubt that was going through his head. But he brings up an interesting point here. So the proposition kind of pertained to this particular scenario would be that Minnesota can accept the PI, but maybe keep the down and get the five seconds back. So instead of first and goal with four seconds left, it's third down with nine seconds left again. So you basically get like a redo of that play. And I think it's interesting because having the rule like it does, it's it's kind of counterproductive or however you want to say it or hypocritical of what other rules are in place for. There are so many rules in college football and the NFL to prevent teams from kind of um, using the clock to their advantage. Like when you have a 10 second runoff with a false start, when you have a 10 second runoff uh, with intentional grounding, things like that. There are a lot of rules in place for manipulating the clock. That's the word I'm looking for. So in this case, would it make sense to have a rule like that? Would it make sense? Uh, Sure. I kind of like that it is the way it is. I kind of like the status quo. And I think I like it. I, I'm, I'm, I might struggle to put this into words that really reflect how I feel, but I like that time is sort of this precious resource in football that you can't really do anything to get back. And I know that that favors defensive players who might try to manipulate the situation like this, uh, like happened in this game, because you, hey, I'm going to give you the first down. We're going to give you positioning. We're going to give you a fresh set of downs, but there's nothing you can do to get this time back. And that's sort of an advantage for defensive players. Now, it's highly contextual, and this is not going to come up very often, but when it does, it feels like one of those last advantages for defensive players, and I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think that there have been so many rules in place to hurt the defense for the sake of keeping fans interested. So I'm fine with, and let me make it clear, I'm okay with the rule as it is now. I would also be okay if they changed it. I just ask because there are, like I said, there are a lot of rules in place to stop teams from manipulating the clock. So I guess, again, let me ask you, why does this rule not exist or exist, depending on how you see the rule, when other rules are in place to stop teams from doing something similar? Do you see any sort of hypocrisy or whatever the right word is for sure this. They, there's a there's a lack of consistent um 
thought processes that govern some of these time rules. But I think if you're looking for like overall smoothness in philosophies that drive rules in, in football, specifically football, I think you're probably wasting your time because it feels like, especially in like the 21st century where we add in these little rules, it feels super reactionary, right? Like something happens and we go, oh, well, we can't have that happen again. And the obvious example for this is the Saints-Rams game from the NFL playoffs last year. And now we have pass interference that's reviewable. And for some reason, coaches in the NFL can't figure out that they should never challenge this shit like it almost never gets overturned but that's the that's the easy example right like thing happened oh we can't have that happen anymore let's let's make a new rule like and, and i think at a certain point this is something i've thought about before do we have to take all the rules back down and then build all the rules back up one off season so that it seems more even and the thought process behind the rules that govern the game seem more uh, thoughtful and more well-designed rather than just sort of like built Jenga tower style, like one little bit at a time. And also, I mean, to be clear, this like almost never happens. This scenario in which I'm very specifically referencing here where Minnesota is down by 17, they really could use a touchdown in this case. Yeah, we've seen it before. Usually we'll see like a, a defensive uh, penalty at the end of the game that gives them one untimed down. We see that occasionally. This specific situation that I'm referencing where a team would actually decline it because they don't want to kick the field goal, they want the five seconds back, this doesn't happen very much. Like, I don't I don't even know how once a week amongst the, the 50 FBS teams, I have no idea how often this actually happens. That's kind of why I'm okay if they were to change it or if they were to keep it the same. I'm also okay with keeping the same because I really don't think Iowa went into that play saying, hold all of their guys, suck down the five or six seconds. I, there, there's just no way that maybe in the NFL I could see players that have better awareness and understand what's going on. In college football, I think the guy who committed it was an underclassman too. had barely played. I can't remember who it was, though. But there's no way that that happened. Phil Parker is not going to his DBs and saying, hold Tyler Johnson, hold Rashad Bateman, suck down the five or six seconds, make them kick the field goal. They didn't even know that there was some debate as to whether or not P.J. Fleck was even going to kick the field goal or still go for it, run a quick slant, try to get three seconds off the clock. So, yes, this is a very, very specific situation, but it's something that I've thought about before because of their other rules in place that prevent teams from manipulating the clock. All right, let's play you're wrong. I'm going to do the uh, the uh, statements this week. Chase, you tell me when uh, I am wrong here. Number one, any return man on a kickoff, any return guy who does not wave for a fair catch on a kickoff should be benched immediately. Uh, I'm going to say you're wrong. And this is like an SAT question where like you're reading the question and it starts out with XXX should never. And like I don't even have to read the rest of the question. The answer is if it's a true false question, the answer is false. Because there's almost no, I don't know who is listening to this podcast for like SEC or SAT question prep, but if you are, like, there you go. I just gave you $100 worth of free information. Um, like, it just feels like I'm never, I'm almost never going to say X thing should never happen. I get what you're saying, like 90 to okay, 95% so in what, of the time. What scenario are you fine with the guy? taking it out of the end zone, or even taking it with a new rule last couple of years, taking it from the five. And what scenario are you okay with that? When your return guy is like DeAnthony Thomas or Tavon Austin, and you're one of these like really nice special teams 
uh, squads and you okay, consistently fine. Yeah, okay, you, you get that point. You win this. That's what I'm saying. You yeah, win I'm this, not going to say never, but your point is well taken because m- almost all of the time, like, you what need is the to risk just reward? The risk-reward there is just, it's insanely low. I mean, of all the holding the blocks in the back, you could fumble, all this kind of crap that's going to go wrong. And with how fast cover teams are, even, even though teams don't practice special teams nearly as much as they did before, it drives me absolutely crazy. So, okay, if your name is not De- uh, Dante Hall, if your name is not DeAnthony Thomas, if your name is not Cordero Patterson, whoever, um, who was the returner from Wisconsin? Gilreath. If your name is not David Gilreath, you need to wait for a fair catch on a kickoff every single time. Okay, number two. And, and unless you're one of those guys, if you're in that class and your team has specifically said, okay, yeah, you, you can take it out. If you feel like you've got the lane, if you like what you see, go for it. But most teams should be telling their guys, go out there, catch it, fair catch. Let's start at the team. Let's 25 start at normal free yards. Like you're literally yeah. getting 25 free yards. But it's an ego thing. And that's kind of why college sports is great is because it's there's 125 guys out there going, I'm the guy where it's worth it to take it out. And almost every single time, they're wrong. Number two, Indiana will beat Michigan in week 13. Indiana will beat Michigan at home. in week 13. It's in Bloomington. Uh, I'm going to say you're wrong. And, and I, I've, I've been really high on Indiana all year. I've bet a lot of Indiana games because they've caught a lot of points and it's been a good investment. But I feel like the last month, Michigan has really been playing well. So I won't be surprised to see Michigan go in there and win. I just feel like, you know, after the sort of national pressure got taken off that team, I have no idea if this is the reason why. I'm just making an observation. After Michigan sort of got taken out of that national conversation and we sort of reset where they lived, what neighborhood they were in this year, they played really well. Uh Starting sort of with the Penn State game and going all the way through to now. Or even the Iowa game. I mean, they, they beat a, an Iowa team that obviously Iowa is completely different on the road versus at home. But, yeah, I mean, even with the Iowa game, they held Iowa to three points. Um, yeah, the Penn State game, they looked pretty good in the second half. They smashed Notre Dame. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I just feel that much better about Indiana. I think Indiana's good. I don't know if they're the better team, but I, if it was in Ann Arbor, no, I'm taking Michigan. It's in I think they'd be a great bet without knowing what the point spread is. What do you right think now? it'll be? I, we'll talk about it uh, on Wednesday, Wednesday's episode of the Midweek um, High Motor Podcast. But what do you think it's going to be? Michigan uh, I five. Think it's going to be. I think it's going to need to be something to encourage people to bet Indiana. What's the number there? Is it five? Is it six? Is it higher? I think it'll be between six and a half and seven and a half. It's going to be right in that range. Yeah, we'll talk about that more on uh, Wednesday morning. All right, so you're telling me I'm wrong on both of those. Let's let's go back to kind of the same just as number one, talking about um, not actual teams here. Number three, a player ejected for targeting should never be forced to leave the field. They can watch the rest of the game from the sideline. What is leaving the field doing? I'm going to say you're wrong, and it's for a very specific and borderline petty reason. When you're watching that national broadcast, and they come back and they say, uh, it's been confirmed, it's targeting, X player is disqualified. A hundred percent of the time, you have the trainer come over and put their arm around the guy, and then I, I love the trainer anguish of like, I know you have all of the power here, player, and I have none of the power, but my boss just told me I have to walk you off this field, and I'm very uncomfortable right now, and I love watching that uncomfortableness. You are a cold, cold man. 
It's fun to watch, though. Well, you can at least agree that it's the stupidest rule. It's a I mean, really this dumb isn't rule. like it's a so dad dumb. in Little League who gets ejected for punching the umpire and he has to leave the premises. Like, the guy just made the wrong hit. He, a it's quarter- like in baseball when somebody gets tossed and they have to walk a certain distance, like, into the tunnel. Like, they, they can't physically be... It's just dumb. Well, in, in so many cases, too, like, with, with different college football stadiums that are older and not... And like, there are a lot of stadiums where the tunnels are the same. Like, every player goes in the same tunnel, they just turn left or right once they get in there. So there's only one tunnel. So a lot of these cases, a guy will have to walk, like, 200 yards to the tunnel. Let the guy just sit on the freaking sideline. Yeah, it's dumb. Number four, a non... I have two ACC things here to wrap up your wrong. Number four, a non-Clemson team won't make the playoff for at least three seasons. And when I say three seasons, not including this year, obviously, because a a non-Clemson team is not making the playoff. So not including this year... A non-Clemson ACC team won't make the playoff in 2020, 2021, or 2022. Hmm. And if you disagree with me, I want to hear which team you think is going to make the playoff in the next three years because I can see no argument for anybody else in the ACC. So my gut here, if I can just sort of talk through this out loud, my gut here is to say you're wrong for the exact same reason I said it in the first question, right? Like if you're giving me the field for three years – that's enticing. Number one, dynasties always feel bigger in the moment than they are. I, now, I'm, I'm going to push back against that in a second because I think this Clemson thing is made for the long haul. But you, I never want to be a prisoner of the moment and think, okay, Clemson's just going to run the ACC for the foreseeable future because historically, uh, that's probably not going to happen if, if you look at the historical evidence. Number two, there's like the ACC is really bad this year, and I think we all agree on that. But in two years, it could be back to being arguably the deepest conference in you know college football. And it, there is a plausible scenario where the ACC pushes to get two teams in the playoffs. May, you know, the, the, whoever wins the Coastal might actually be good someday. Uh, maybe Virginia Tech gets it going again. Maybe, uh, maybe Miami gets it going again. Florida State could could push to come out of the the Atlantic Division, and even though they wouldn't necessarily be in the conference title game, if you're assuming Clemson's going to keep running stuff, maybe they play a couple of marquee. So you're saying all these maybe's, but I don't think that you actually believe that Virginia Tech is going to make the playoff in the next three years. You don't actually believe that. I'm saying. There are any number of circumstances that could unfold that we can't foresee right now on November. I agree. I agree that certain things can happen. I'm never really one to say this will never happen. So, but I don't think it. I wouldn't. There's this will not happen in the next three years. So you would disagree with that? No. What I'm saying is my gut. My first right. But am I wrong or not? Your my gut is to say you're wrong, but I think I'm going to agree with you. Excellent. Number five. Again, ACC here, this is the last one. This comes from Spencer Hansen on Twitter. If you ever have any of your wrong suggestions, any who would they hire suggestions, anything else for the pod, at High Motor Pod, at a Dowdy 88 at Chase A. Kitty. I love this one so much. Scott Satterfield will lead, uh, excuse me, will lead Louisville to the ACC title within the next five years. So not this year. We'll do five more years. And this kind of falls in the same boat. And based upon your last answer, I think that you're going to agree with this. I'm going to say you're wrong. How come? Are you not that high on Scott Satterfield? I am very high on Scott Satterfield. I am so high on Scott Satterfield. And I do problem? not think he will be the coach of Louisville in the next oh. five, uh, five years from now. So how about that? Bravo to you, sir. See, you had this horrible Saturday, and now you come on the High Motor Podcast, and you just start spitting fire. Just breaking it down. I love that. Is he going to be at Florida State? 
Uh, he could. I mean, uh, okay, fine. We'll, we'll play who they hire in a second. But where is Scott Satterfield? Five years from right now, let's have some fun. Oh, this, where is, Scott this is the same thing as the last. No, ACC just you know, just I mean, give me an many, answer. How many different places could he end up? Give me, dude, give me one school. If you had to bet the entire Chase A Kitty fortune on this one, where is he? One, one name. I think he's at. I think he's at Louisville in five years. I think how long he stayed at App State suggests he's willing to stay at a program for a while. So this would be five years. So not including this year, it means that Scott Satterfield will be Louisville head coach in 2024. Minimum. I think he's there. Where is he? Hmm. Hmm. Is it good podcasting if I sit here and like just think about it for 12 seconds? I'm going to give good? you five more seconds, then we're going to move on to who would they hire. Texas? Okay, Texas. Scott Satterfield head coach Texas. Where is Tom Herman coaching at that point then? Not Texas. <laughs> XFL. Uh... All right. I don't know. Maybe Michigan. Michigan. Somebody with a checkbook, right? Okay. Okay. Who would they hire? I don't, I don't like this put on put me on the spot stuff. Who would they hire? So I'm not going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to run through a little bit of a scenario here. Who would they hire? Usually we do a program we think a coach is in the hot seat because if you want to talk about coach being in the hot seat, you have to talk about who are they going to hire. This time we're going to turn it around kind of like we did with Boise State uh, like three or four weeks ago where we said if Brian Harson does leave, who would Boise State hire? We're going to do the same thing here with Memphis. Mike Norvell's name has got a lot of attention the last couple of years. This year, again, getting a lot of attention, potentially for the Arkansas job, potentially for the Florida State job. And even though we don't see many jobs opening, especially in the Power Five, I mean, you never know. If Michigan State opens, if some Power Five coach bails, if Matt Rule bails, Mike Norvell is is the name. I mean, he's in that group of like the five hottest semi-attainable head coaches in the country right now. He is an in-demand coach, and even though Memphis has bumped that salary and assistant pool significantly, coaches just don't stay at G5 programs, especially not young guys, not guys who have spent their basically their entire career, uh, most of their career before at P5 schools. I mean, remember Mike Norvell, he's a Todd Graham guy. Tulsa, Pittsburgh, Arizona State, still only 38 years old, Texas guy, uh, he played D2 ball at Central Arkansas. Then he was scooped up by Graham shortly thereafter and then just skyrocketed up the ranks on Graham's staff. OC at Arizona State got the Memphis job. If Mike Norvell leaves Memphis, who does Memphis, my alma mater? Memphis is my alma mater. Do you know that? Uh, Memphis and Kansas, right? There you go. You, who does yeah. Memphis hire? I did know that. I um, have one name that I love, and I'm really curious if you have that same name on there. Okay, what do you have? Chip Long, offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. He's also a Todd Graham guy. He was on Norvell's staff uh, two years ago before he left for Notre Dame. I think that makes so much sense. And even though there's – so this is kind of what I didn't say. They have a new AD, Laird Veach. He was at Florida, Kansas State for a while before going to Memphis. Um, like he arrived like re- recently, like weeks ago he got there. So that's what kind of makes this tough. He could be presented in the first three months on the job with having to replace Mike Norvell. That's why I think he could go for a guy like Chip Long, who has familiarity with Memphis. And even though Veach hasn't worked specifically with Long, I think that familiarity makes a ton of sense here. Another young guy, um, highly respected offensive coordinator, quarterbacks guy. I think that Chip Long is the name on that list. Uh, it's a great name. It's a name that I saw. So when I when I went looking for this name, I like I do a lot of times, I look at the past history of a who programs hire. And when you look at Memphis, they like to hire up and coming offensive coordinators. So Chip Long is absolutely sort of the formula for what Memphis probably is looking for. 
they're looking for Chip Long, even if they don't hire Chip Long, is is how I would put it. I think uh, Billy Napier, I th- I would throw in there uh, at, at Lafayette, at Louisiana Lafayette. Uh, I, I think he is. I think he's an undersold commodity. I think people haven't like warmed up to how good he is yet because he's been a head coach for such a short amount of time. Uh, and, and so I think he's probably going to get some job offers starting this offseason. Maybe he waits till next offseason to jump. But I think because he's been a head coach for such a short amount of time, I don't think he's going to go from G5 to P5. I think he's going to go to a better G5 job. Um, and I yeah, think and he kind of fits this, that same mold where he's what he's like 38, 39 years old, something like that. He has the Nick Saban stuff on his uh, background. Also was at Arizona State. Yeah, there's a lot of similarity there with with him and Chip Long. Agree. I think, uh, and I have one more name. I think he's too raw. I think I, I don't think he has enough of a resume yet to get a head coaching job, especially one at a place like Memphis that is a pretty nice program. But I think Jake Moreland, the offensive coordinator at Western Michigan. I think four or five years from now, more people are going to know his name. Yeah, and I think that he is another guy. He kind of feels like, I, I mentioned Kirk Shiraka if, if Michigan State were to move on last week. He kind of feels like Kirk Shiraka light, where he needs to go to like a Kirk Shiraka type of job, an offensive coordinator at a P5 school or a very low rate G5 and have a nice run and then move up. I think I he's agree. kind of in yeah. that spot too. I th- And that's I think that's kind of what I'm saying too, is that like, I think he still needs one more line on his resume, but I think this is sort of the track that he is on. Do you think that Mike Norvell will leave? Um, I think... Do you think the lack he, of... Maybe the question is, do you think the lack of Power 5... If there were more Power 5 jobs opening up this year, we don't think there will be that many. If there were more, do you think he would leave? Yeah, I think that's the interesting question, right? Because it's something we've talked about all year, is that we don't think there's going to be a ton of carnage in the coaching carousel at the end of the year. So I do think that he's going to be one of those top names, and we know that people are going to get fired. It happens every year, and it's almost always more than we think. So there could be a couple jobs open up that we are not expecting. But I I don't know. It's a tough question. I I think his name is going to be involved in a lot of things. Sort of like last year, it, it felt like, to sort of bring in my FCS background, it felt like we knew Mike Houston that was the year that somebody was going to get him. Three years of James Madison, two national title appearances, and he he's, he was something like you know forty two and five. We knew that the money was coming and that somebody was going to get him. And that was such an interesting scenario. And maybe there's kind of some some similarities here where we're talking about Mike Novell for all of these. Uh, I mean, Arkansas is a good job. It's not a top ten job, but it's still a really good job. Florida State's still a really good job, and we. At least I thought that Mike Houston, where were you at? Did you think Mike Houston was going to get a P5 job? Did you think he was going to be in play for North Carolina? Geographically, that made sense. If Dave Dorian left NC State, did you think he was going to be in play for that? And we just, we didn't, we thought he was going to get a job. We thought it was going to be bigger. He wound up at, at Charlotte. That didn't work out for what, 48 hours or something? He, yeah, and he was he, at Charlotte for about half a day. Right. Yeah. And then East Carolina. <laughs> so maybe is this similar in that Mike Norvell, we keep talking about him. For all of these big jobs, maybe is he, and coaches talk about this so much more lately, it is way more about fit, it's way more about your family. The money is pretty similar at most jobs. Yeah, there is a difference between like 3 and $5 million, but it's still big money. So maybe is Mike Norvell just looking for a better fit where he leaves and we're like, really? He left Memphis for whatever, as opposed to leaving Memphis for, um, like Texas is an opening, but that would... If Texas did open, I think his name would get mentioned a lot. So maybe is Mike Norvell kind of in that Mike Houston mold where we're saying, 
yeah, we think he's going to leave for a bigger job, but maybe he'll leave for a slightly better job that he just likes a lot. I, all I can tell you is that if I was Mike Norvell and I was living in Memphis, which is an objectively very cool city, like it's in the south, but it's not like the deep south. It's it's sort of the best of both. It's in that like Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, like we're the south, but we still have like a lot of metropolitan stuff going on and you're just near a lot of stuff. Uh, I don't know. I... I you would need a really good gig to get to pull me away. He's from in that. a yeah, he's in a really good, comfortable position right now. Um, some other names that I, I think that could be in play. I think Seth Luttrell, even though he's been underwhelming at North Texas, and we talked about Seth Luttrell so much over the off season and last year as a potential P five candidate, like a guy that could get a Big Twelve job. As we've talked about, the Big Twelve jobs are not opening this year unless Rule bails, unless Matt Campbell bails. Nothing else is going to open in the Big Twelve. So maybe Seth Luttrell instead of Kind of in that same discussion, instead of going for the P5, maybe he steps up to a really good G5 job at Memphis and then makes the leap. Uh, I think Bill Clark could be in play there, Eli Drinkwitz from App State. But I really like Chip Long. I think from 10,000 feet, it appears to make some sense. Okay, Chase and I will be back, like we said, Wednesday morning with the midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast. We will talk about that Indiana-Michigan line to see if it settles uh, in that 6.5 to 7 range go over some of the bigger games, play some rapid fire. In the meantime, check out all episodes of the High Motor Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spreaker, Stitcher, anywhere you do your podcasting. Again, we're on Twitter. If you have any recommendations for You're Wrong, who would they hire? Anything else, at High Motor Pod, at Audi 88 at Chase A. Kitty. This was the Week 12 episode of the High Motor Podcast. Please come back Wednesday. We will look ahead to Week 13 of the college football season. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names But it didn't matter Cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in